Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you this evening? David, it's my birthday. So happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to many, many people via social media who have sent birthday greetings. I really appreciate it. And I, I especially appreciate it this year. Um, uh, I think people know that uh, my mom is 95, but my dad, you know, he died at 60. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling, uh, I don't know, the poignancy of, of, of this birthday, but I'm in, in such a good vibe mode that uh, I just, I'm just beaming. I'm smiling. I'm feeling good. I did my ritual crossing of swimming across the Colorado River. And people who uh, don't freak that, I don't mean the rapids the section of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's a little bit calm, but, you know, it's the Colorado River. It's a river. You've got to take it seriously. Um, and I completed another uh, piece of extended music with my ensemble, which we've entered into this big competition uh, in Africa for new music, sort of psychedelic Africana world music, avant-garde jazz thing. And it's, uh, I'm really excited about that. So it's been a very, very good day. And also a really huge shout out to Jay, Jay Springer, who is one of our devoted uh, listening fans of Lost Explorers. He very uh, graciously had me on his podcast, uh, which was really, really interesting. And I think... Um, I'm not sure what his plans are for for running that episode, so I'm not sure how much I should say about that now. But I'm I'm going to. Uh, it was a busy day, obviously, so I'm going to be in correspondence with Jay about that, and I can get some clues as to what uh, what would be appropriate to say on our show. But so it's been a really uh, exciting day. Uh, I just feel good. I feel good. How are you? I also feel good. I have had a very normal week. A very, a very normal week. I'm completely within. I'm knocking. I'm knocking on the wood. Yeah, yeah knocking, knocking. I mean, normal doesn't necessarily mean always great. Normal means the same normal issues. But normal also means, you know, sticking to my plan, waking up at four. Um, man, I, I know I said it last episode, but it's a total, it just really is a game changer. Everything that happens in your day feels like the correct thing to happen, good or bad, if you start the day off right. And it's really funny because I was reading a book about, about book marketing um, and they were using an example of a book called The Miracle Morning, which I guess is like a self-help series about taking your morning back and you know making sure that you have the like space a to yourself. Movement, you know, the, the miracle cleanse your whole how to empty your whole bowels. Yeah, yeah. Have a miracle morning. But I saw that and I was and I thought, you know, I'm not going to read that. It's a 14 book series. I don't know how many books you need to say the same thing but uh man that's it's just it's just true i mean i don't trying to think if there's anything interesting oh here's something really funny i took gus to the park today 
and I had to take him early because uh, it was going to be 107 out today. But yeah, it never got to it. It got to 102, but the the uh, the forecast was for 107. So I took him out at 9:30. We spent two hours at the park. One of those hours was playing on the on the swing set, and the other hour was walking a path. And as we were walking, we came upon a passed out junkie. He was laying in the bush with three backpacks around him. And he was covering his face like this. And he was in the shade. And Gus and I don't walk with a stroller. I make him walk because part of the idea is that he gets tired from the walk. Um, And so Gus kind of walked up to him and I... It's the same approach I have to people who pass with dogs. I let them get close, but I'm watching, you know? Right. And he, he got close and he looked up at me and he went, night, night. <laughs> and I said, yeah, he is. He did go night, night. That's right. <laughs> wow. That's probably the funniest thing that's happened this week. Otherwise, it's going to Walmart and paying bills and reading books. I've been reading. Uh, I finished Altered Carbon. I'm currently reading this really great collection of short stories uh, by Pat Murphy called Points of Departure. Uh Um, It's good. good, This was a a Philip K. Dick award winner in 1990. It won the award. I've been picking up books that have won the award and reading them. I've also been reading 1984's uh, Tea with the Black Dragon by R.A. McCafferty which won the award that year. It was the the second winner. The first winner was uh, Rudy Rucker for software in 1983. And then after that was uh, Tea with the Black Dragon. Um, what else have I been doing? Yeah, just working uh, on, my, on my business, I guess. There's not much interesting to say. When listeners see what we've been doing, it'll be very impressive, but... Most of it is just grunt work, just writing and. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I think that's look. You know that that's true of of everything. And you know when you were talking about <clears throat> the miracle, excuse me, the miracle morning. If we can get past that silly phrasing, uh, you know that kind of approach, which is disciplined and is maybe too regimental for some people who just can't bring themselves to that. I think if you can give yourself over to it, it makes me think of uh, what two uh, writers that that I really admire, Gary Snyder writing about his time in a Japanese monastery, and then Thomas Merton. Do you know Thomas Merton? The I, poet? Love Thomas Merton. Yeah, I love Thomas Merton. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have about, I think I have four Thomas Merton books on my shelf. Yeah. Just a wonderful, I, I, I kind of rediscover him from time to time. And for mm-hmm. listeners, he, he was a, a very burly, gentle, wonderful, uh, strong, masculine man who nevertheless had this very deep spiritual contemplative side and was part of a monastery in Kentucky. And 
just a, a figure that connects with a whole bunch of other, you could liken him, you know, Robert Bly. There are sorts of echoes to some extent, Terrence McKenna, Alan Watts. There's a whole field that he might be, but he stands apart, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the descriptions of the, the routine, if you like, of, of the monasteries or these faith communities, contemplation communities really as much more more so than than any other uh religious orientation both of them the zen and this um and the christian orientation the the ability to then give themselves over to the routine and i remember reading in in their kind of autobiographical work they each have a moment of realization about that, where they really truly evolve from just not resisting the routine to actually embracing it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Gary Snyder writes about it in a series of interviews, which is published by New Directions, called The Real Work. And it's from his peak period in the 60s, 70s. He'd won the Pulitzer Prize for Turtle Island. And he's up on uh, the land in the Sierra foothills and is a homesteader and really more famous in the back to the land movement. But he writes about this sort of awareness of the Zen monk approach to chores and pettiness Mm -hmm, and mundanity. mm -hmm. And he has this beautiful sort of practical Pacific Northwest farm guy, forest ranger, kind of rigid thinking, but nonetheless a poet. But over in Japan, he finally has that cultural moment of, you know, he gets it. Mm, that mm-hmm. was the, mm-hmm. you know, that was I where that. it was in the in Japanese culture. So he also got quite a bit more from that crisis. Mm-hmm. And that incidentally is a little bit like what I experienced in Melanesia. And I think mm-hmm. it's a kind of crisis. It strikes me as being analogous to malaria for me, um, a, a calamity that then one becomes so grateful for. It is essential to self. You know, you, you just can't even imagine, you know, how, how, what would, you know, what would life be like without that experience that and I think that crisis is something to really. Um, that's what I'm trying to really embrace for this next year on this. Mm-hmm. I'm really thinking that, you know, crisis rhymes with lysis, which is a word we never. I mean, who uses I don't know that? if I've ever heard that book. That, that well, word, there actually. you go. You see, you mm-hmm. learn something mm-hmm. new. Every time we chat, you know, and every day mm-hmm. and every moment, if we if we keep our uh, hats open for the right kind of rain and. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. if we embrace crisis, uh, we're embracing some cool things, surprise, joy, yeah. you know. Yeah, I was looking up Gary Snyder books because I'm not super familiar with him for anybody who's interested in Thomas Merton, though. He was a Trappist monk. Trappist monk, yes, that's it. And, and there's he, a whole thing that goes with that. And uh, of course, Seven Story Mountain is the big one. That's the yeah. that's. But I, I 
I find myself going to his uh, personal journals a lot. Yeah, um, I have I have those on my Kindle, and I'll sometimes open those up before bed. Uh, the way of Chuang Tzu is really interesting too. And I see there was a time during the COVID crisis where I was that was my moment of upheaval and attempting to figure out where exactly I sat. And Thomas Merton, uh, along with even Illich, uh, both Catholic priests, oddly enough, really spoke to me. Um, Also, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting his name. His name is so ordinary that uh, I'll remember it later. But I was really interested in these Catholic thinkers and Thomas Merton, I think in particular, I was able to initially find a lot of his books for free on Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D, which is a great, uh, you know, subscription library service. And uh, his melding of East and West, that's what was very interesting to me. Somebody who could become a Trappist monk, but be fascinated with, you know, a philo- a Chinese philosopher who lived before Christ is very compelling to me that that synthesis in order to create something new. And I think that, you know, obviously you and I talk about things of this nature every episode, but I mean, my other podcast agitator, I'm fascinated by Japanese culture, Shinto in particular. I'm very interested in Shintoism. I would in the same way that I haven't adopted a formal meditation practice, but I still wake up at four every morning. I don't think I would ever go so far as to convert into Catholicism or uh, Buddhism or Shintoism or Confucianism or whatever, whatever the ism. But I love hopping. I love yeah. hopping. Well, and I think with with people like Thomas Merton, you're you're hopping with you know, on some pretty interesting freight cars. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I love the fact that he was part of the strange Kentucky sort of Renaissance. Ralph Eugene Meatyard as a photographer. Uh, there are a couple of great essayists there, um, and I it, you kind of don't expect. I don't know. That's unfair to Kentucky, isn't it? But if what an it, incredible name, Ralph Eugene. Me- I'm looking him up right now. Oh, I've never heard of this person. Photographer, yeah. Oh man, these are creepy. Looking at these pictures, these are very interesting. Might use one as a as a, a episode picture. Yeah, yeah. These are Lynchian, dude. These are freaking creepy. Yeah, man. he's really out there. He's he's a really and so there was some very very interesting things going on in Kentucky, uh, and I, I I think it's good that you mentioned Scribd as that's a great service. But in is as publishers, it occurred to me that uh, New Directions mm-hmm. uh, published all three of those writers mm-hmm. and had a long time commitment to Snyder and Merton. Um, so shout out to New Directions. They're still going. James wonderful. He's got these, he's got these pictures of children wearing these huge, yeah, latex old old people masks, elderly people masks. These are what year was this taken in? I have to late 50s, 60s. 
late fifties. What's the precedent for this? Well, where did this come from? Right out there. I mean, I think that that you could, you know, if you were teaching his work, you'd, you'd mention Diane Arbus. Uh, wow. and wow. but there were many people who kind of came after him, and he also what you're seeing with the mask work, which is you know, uh, for listeners is, is not familiar with his work, um, very staged posed photographs of, of children and older people wearing basically Halloween masks, you know, uh, they're not anything sort of but the effect the psychological effect is quite uncanny i think wow there's this great picture of a man sitting in a john boat and he's got makeup on two instances of blush right here and he's kind of holding a kabuki mask in his hand right and and the john boats floating into the reeds this is one of the most compelling oh, so pictures i've ever seen I've I'm never so, seen this before. This is all oh, brand new to me. Wow. Oh, Ralph Eugene Meatyard might yeah. be one of my new favorites. This is incredible stuff, man. Yeah. Oh, I think he he really is quite, quite wonderful. And what you're seeing, what is and that is is what makes his it's his most famous work. Uh there are some other angles which are very interesting. He uh did a lot of, of, of narrative, sort of oral uh, folklore through photography, documenting uh, friends and neighbors and very, and one of his friends had um, some sort of, of disease or some, some sort of health crisis, but it required different kinds of amputation, maybe diabetes, I don't know. I don't know, younger person, but, Ralph Eugene Meteor documents his friend as he's being dismantled. It's it's insane. It's just so wonderful. Um, and, this. and another thing that he did, which is completely out of character with these other aspects, which I think is really an interesting compliment, uh, is some very zen-like, out-of-focus abstracts of bare twig you know branches and mm-hmm. um there's a very uh he loved a particular river uh region um and did a lot of photography once he was introduced to that area and you wouldn't expect that the guy who did the, the weird kids in mass very david lynchian before lynch uh would be doing this other really very abstract, out-of-focus, Zen-influenced thing. Even when he's working with models um, who are not doing anything particularly strange, there is a strangeness to it. I see some pictures here of, of just children yeah, standing against Kentucky backdrops. There's a great photo, man. I wonder if I could share this somehow. It's a kid who looks like they're maybe five or six years old, uh, uh, dressed in a coat and pants and shoes, and they're laying on some kind of rock formation, and he's taking the picture from above. And it's such a, I mean, that's a real, there's no, uh, there's no mask, there's no 
overt symbolism because some of his pictures have American flags and things like that. But what? Oh, and now going down that rabbit hole, I've gotten to some of his uh, geological photography of just the landscapes. Wow. What an eye. How does that happen? You know what? This is a really good segue. I'm going to hold off because we have to do our segments first. Yeah. But but I want to I want to put the question to you and get it running on that second track is is where does that eye come from? You know, you think you you've heard people say like, oh, they just have an eye for photography. Where does it come? How how do these? He's taking pictures of rocks, but if I go and take a picture of a rock with my iPhone, it's not going to be the same thing. It could even be the exact same thing. You know what I mean? It could be the exact, I could find the spot he was in and take a picture of it. It's not going to be the same thing, but. What you're talking about is absolutely. I have no doubt about that phenomenon at all. I think it's it's just fundamental. It may be mysterious, but it's also incredibly obvious if anything can be said to be obvious. Cool. Somehow, somehow people, I think we're using the eye as metaphor. This is something that Jay and I were talking a lot about, as you can imagine, given the mm-hmm. nature of the mm-hmm. show. That's all I'll say on that. But the eye for something we we also mean that you know in terms of metonymy or synecdoche or both with with all of the senses because you can like perception yeah yeah it it is it's kind of there is one perception really we know that that's the original animal consciousness it's sensed around it's the whole synesthesia it's everything joined so if we say there's there's that one I think it's just, it's clear that certain people have that sense that's inside them and then it projects out and it finds form, you know? It's the photographer in the photo. It's not the photo itself. You're you're seeing a self-portrait every time you see these pictures. Yeah, and and I think so often these, you know, these people of exceptional giftedness if we want to call it that they really do a range of things you know mm-hmm. uh it's i don't know if you've ever seen any of dh lawrence's paintings uh but he was actually really a pretty good painter you know uh and maybe that's not surprising you know i think that that it it it's a kind of a multimedia art expression that comes somehow from within and i think that it is more uh a synesthetic really high density sense of connection of of perceptual possibilities rather than taste which was a very big word in the 19th century and that was where a lot of the really what would become the hip, cool artists of the 20th century. That was really their rejection, that the notion right. of taste. It mm-hmm. sounded so effete, you know, mm-hmm. and so uh, a little bit too Oscar Wilde not being ironic, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. not a good look. It was beginning yeah. really decadent and and kind of perfumey. And uh, 
they these uh these photos are really or not photos but the pictures the paintings of dh dh lawrence are interesting because he has a a clear focus on what he's interested in yes <laughs> so i'm 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 looking at one that has uh, you know a kind of a, a seaside cliff but there are two people standing in the frame and it's almost like the fisheye lens from you know punk 90s album covers where <laughs> right. the where the heads are very prominent and then there's a huge kangaroo in the photo as well so he's assembling what's interesting to him about the landscape and interestingly enough not not depicting those in meticulous detail they're still cartoonish but it's their prominence within the frame that's indicating what's important so there's them and then there's a a house a kind of split level house behind them and then the landscape is like an afterthought that's very interesting to me well that was a very good gloss i think on his whole body of writing in many ways mm -hmm. but certainly a couple of prominent novels uh, certainly the novel Kangaroo, which he wrote while they were in Australia and has the benefit of his tremendous alertness to situations, but also the, the tourist, you know, the visitor trying to claim a little bit too much knowledge too quickly. Uh, mm. But what a curious, you know, writer, really. I mean so out of fashion today and and yet you know and yet and yes. yet i'd like to start painting i should i should start painting just to have a different medium to work in i have no idea what i'm doing but but why not why not oh, just go no, get the i i think you have to i mean well i mean i i'm really pleased with this uh really important flowchart diagram maze map that you sent me uh and you do have some real graphic, you know, design skills, but I think you definitely need to splash some paint. You need to get some tactile, erotic, sort of external industrial strangeness going that you can see instantly and and break from the the rather ethereal world of of writing. And are you ready for my I'm ready. I'm ready. What's your band for today? I'm serious. Mm -hmm. They are called the Slim Jims. And their mm -hmm. album is titled Music for Tall Men Only. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know where that expression came from, but I was seeing these guys who look kind of like they're they're real they're they're real but their their uniform is likened to something out of the fabulous furry freak brothers except that they're very pencil thin and are wearing plaid shirts and boots and they they don't look fully dimensional even though they are and they've carefully crafted that look and then the expression you know music for tall men only you know i thought damn me i i'd be curious about that i'd go what really it, it's quirky enough to get my attention so i i threw it 
in, and their lead single is, we look down on you. And they kind of uh, musically are somewhere between a kind of Credence Clearwater revival, revival bar band in plaid shirts and something a little bit more just plain bizarre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. Do you have an aphorism for us today? I've, I've, I've got, yeah, I've got a couple because it's my birthday, but the (laughs) first one is, I think just a good, slogan i think there is a difference between a slogan and an aphorism i don't want to be inclusive i want to be inviting and i really feel that way i think that that i think inclusive is a very very strange and kind of flabby and and vacuous gaseous sort of word i think inviting sounds ah i like that Second one, if so many seemingly vital things are invisible, blindness needs to be reconsidered. And that, I think, really addresses this unified sense, you know, the one sense that we were just talking about. I think that that is really um, the way forward in cultivating greater extension of mind. One of the questions uh, Jay asked me, what was the most effective technique in that regard? And I said, limitation. I think enforced limitation, that Zen sense that almost that connects kind of with the monks, you know, Snyder. Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is just the way forward. And I've, I've been doing more and more blindfolded work. Uh, and I really think it's just, it's so simple, but it is so deeply effective. And in ways that I, I don't even want to work, try to articulate, you know, it's kind of yeah. like what you're saying, collective uh, synthetic benefits of your morning routine. You, you can't break it down and there's no point, you know. Nope. Um, so that's that's kind of where that and I have a very special imaginative challenge. So we need to get into this because this is uh, this is no fooling around. Not that we ever do. Okay. But listen carefully. Subjected to radical psychological torture, a highly trained special intelligence op asset of premium caliber and capability makes a singularly shrewd strategic decision. You are that operative. What is your strategic decision under intense, weird pressure? Does it work? I thought we needed a little bit of MK Ultra Jazz in to the mix. Wow. Okay. 
That's and it's very also, cool. I mean, it, it is, I mean, you could, you, you of course have any way, any, all of your options open about a response to this, but I do think that I might have zeroed the blowgun dart in on the real crisis we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I will think about that as we continue our discussion. That's a good one. I like it when they're challenging. Well, last time was so successful with the Osborne effect. I've already been talking about that. And it look, you know, for listeners who miss this, you need to really, with the episodes just out, you need to, uh, to check it out because David got a, I, I threw him a curly one. I did. And, uh, I threw a, a, a two choice thing. So he took the harder choice, the steeper path in the crossroads, but his response was the Osborne effect. And, uh, and it's, we're going to continue to explore it, but I think it was a really great response. So that's why you get an even more challenging one this time. <laughs> cool. No, I'm into it. All right. For the main episode, you sent me uh, a very cool text, but we are continuing on from where we left. Okay, okay, good, good, yeah, good. So, so it's cool stuff, and I really want to get to it, but I want to be methodical about this. So, we're going to pick up on the paragraph from the text Chris sent me last week that we did not get to in last week's episode. Good. I'm glad you're you're being a good sheepdog here, keeping us on, you know, on point. One step at a time. There's right. a lot of there's a lot of fireflies out there right now. Yeah. We gotta, yeah. we gotta, we gotta stay focused. Okay. The effect of photography was so powerful, painting had to abandon subjects and so created a new notion of subject. Speculation. The American road trip landscape lags behind the levels of psychosocial technological evolution at the same strange rate as the general populace struggles to deal with abstraction. We yearn for the subject, not realizing that photography, film, and video have distanced us from subject by an algebraic curtain of invisible coding. We seek ever more explicit and overt subjects, for example, the porn aesthetic, via the very means that veils. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop right there. Actually, no, one more thing. Deny the veil, enjoy the view. I like that. <laughs> um, that is very... That's very interesting to me. The idea that we seek ever more explicit and overt subjects via the very means that fails it. It seems like it's caught in a kind of endless loop. And I was interested to hear you riff on that particular section of it. Well, have you ever seen the devouring television? Uh, yes. It's kind of a, yes, it, it's that sort of principle. And uh, I, I, I think I've mentioned uh, on the show that I 
I've got a lot of videotape of, of motel and hotel hallways that have that, you know, extension, you know, and you can do lots of woo, 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 and create, you know, these endless Kafka dream hallways or bring things forward. And I think that kind of uh, constant sort of uh, foreshortening is, is one of the things that we don't know where in the hallway we are. You know, I think that's what we've really lost with this, this insane dependence on uh, not just image alone, but media, let's say, as no longer mediating reality, but creating secondary levels of it. And it really does become sort of an infinite regress or, or infinite treadmill. And it just seems like such a ludicrous paradigm position to be in that you think, wait a minute, we've just got to be able to break out of that. But it it is, I think, enormously difficult to do. I think that that we want the view you know, uh, and we're willing to lose perspective to get it. We're, we're willing to really lose the identity that an, uh, having a view might imply mm -hmm. because we're as, we're as empty as what we're watching, you know? That's the, that's the illusion that somehow if you watch something, you know, um, and I've talked about in my, my book, Eat Jellied Eels and Think Distant Thoughts, going back to the history of television, when a Felix the Cat doll, you know, about, I don't know, two feet high, was statically shown on televisions, experimental you know, sets in people's houses in New York. And families would start just watching, worshipping, this Felix the cat image because it was the wonder of technology it was it was this image was being projected out so really early early with the beginnings of television and you think wow that kind of image power and we are so now removed from it we don't even think we don't see the images we don't see multiple layers or screens that might, it's like cataracts on, on top of cataracts, you know? Mm. What is, what is the view to you? What does that mean? It's a completely compromised consumed consumer who feels as if all of their decisions are not really their own. And so they insist more and more, loudly that they are and they become incredibly aggressive in their passiveness and their passivity to the point where well it's just like ghosts really 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 fighting hard to retain form you know just not, you kind of have to admire the tenacity, but it's a tenacity of denial. It's a, it's a tenacity of ignorance. It's a tenacity of delusion. And 
it's very weird to witness and it's something very strange to be on guard about in oneself but on guard we must be it's interesting you further write how sterile the idea of view suddenly looks how at odds with perspective by extension any photographic evidence is by definition tampered with and aren't the airbrush photoshop and deep fakes just a return to the original stage magic nature of photography illusion entertainment not some quote truth could it be that the only objective reality is that which can't be documented i like this a lot because i've talked before about how when i was a kid my friend who lived downstairs for me we lived in germany because dad was stationed over in uh, bosnia at the time during that war and so we lived in a base in Bosnia and the kid who lived down below me, his parents would video record early piracy style, every movie that they would rent on the VHS. So every movie that I saw down at his house was a VHS copy of a VHS tape, which is not great quality to begin no, with, right? No. It was primed for that aspect ratio of TVs at the time, uh, widescreen at the I remember the first time I saw a DVD of something in widescreen, it was James Cameron's The Abyss. And I thought something was wrong with the movie because there were these two black bars there that were there to represent the actual widescreen aspect ratio. But I remember watching those movies. We watched a lot of James Bond. We watched uh, RoboCop. And we also watched Basic Instinct. That was another one of those movies that we saw back then. And that that aesthetic of VHS recording on a recording, that level of irreality that that kind of aesthetic format provided makes those movies feel more real to me than if they were in high definition. And I don't actually like watching movies in high definition. I like a bit of grain. I like that bit of separation. I like for a film to be a film. And so what's interesting to me about that particular element of your note is the, the concept that's hard for me to fully uh, accept and wrap my head around is that a return to something like face uh, uh, Facetune and Photoshop and these kind of things, that sort of return to artifice might be a balancing out of this as though you know, digital photography has gotten too real and that this, this new element of, of editing software is in fact making things faker than they used to be. Although the point that I have difficulty reconciling is that it doesn't feel the same as those VHS tapes. Well, the difficulty is that we're, you're really navigating some extremely complicated psychological terrain, if nothing. Sure. Yeah. And you're doing it very well with the very blunt tools of language. Because I think this is where one aspect, there are several key areas, I think, where language as a strategy just simply 
isn't quite up to the challenge. You know, many people would say just across the board. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm much more optimistic about language. I think you are too as a writer. But there are some moments where it really fails. And I think what you've just outlined in terms of not just aesthetics and, and not just perception, as in just, uh, but a holistic response that is that makes me think of Wilhelm Reich, you know, it makes me think of that uh, that flexible osmotic sense of of the spirit imagination, the being at its best that is possible, and yet there are so many restrictions against it now more than I think even more than when Reich was, was writing, but anyway, that was a really interesting point that you made. I think that. Cool. On to the next part. We've put forward the idea that modernity begins with photography and by extension sound recording. Not with the steam engine, centralized utilities, electricity, the internal combustion engine, the telephone, car, rockets, anesthesia, and antibiotics, etc., however significant these are. Prosecuting this idea, irony, mental illness, alienation, increased prepositional distance, fundamental rewrites of basic tenets of science. I would also point out or I would also point to the developments in medical imaging as the crucial gains in med science. I like that a lot because nothing else med science is doing is really worth much. Uh, extensions of, of photography. Question, is the essential problem mystery of photography merely the representation versus reality problem with regards to uh, 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 we regard to constantly, or is there something more? new monsters that have emerged what else was in the photo what isn't so this is the third man in the woods right yes it is (laughs) yes it is i really yeah i i that couldn't be better said and i really wanted that to emerge organically but i think this for listeners who, who aren't familiar with the third man uh it's it's such an important idea to the show. We encourage you to just scan some of the earlier episodes and just to get a little bit of direct reference because it's just too it's become too rich a metaphor and uh, a model for <clears throat> so many things that it it just it doesn't seem right to uh, to try to explain it other than what you've just said. David, but that is exactly right. That is exactly what's, and that is the uncanny element of it. That's the suspicious element of it. That's the thing that gets us a little bit on alert about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What What is the third thing between representation and reality? I guess it's just the thing that is, right? It's the thing that we're talking about. You'd have to look at it or experience it. Or would you want to try to put that into words? Well, okay. Let's see if we can. um, (laughs) 
let's say what's in the photograph. <laughs> let's let's look at that side of the equation first, if it is an equation that we're working with. How that is determined, I mean, that gets us right into George Lakoff metaphor container, you know? The frame is really even more than just holding the restricting the image. It's it's a container for some sort of information. So what is in a photograph? Well, that answer would have changed enormously since the introduction of photography as the subject subjects of, of photos have changed. The ease of taking them. The, the number of cameras were photographed on and on and on. But there are some decisions being made. And this is where people, who, if they say, well, I don't have anything, you know, aesthetics is a fancy word and they never have any uh, thought about aesthetics as a philosophy. Yeah, you, yeah, they do. Everybody really, truly does. It's inescapable. Aesthetics is absolutely inescapable. And why would one try but what's in a photograph is a very, very peculiar formation of idea. And I think there are some patterns, some deep cultural patterns about how we define that. And some of them are purely uh, matters of symmetry in a fairly mechanical sense and relate to vision on a very almost machine vision sort of level. So they're pre aesthetic perhaps or pre-psychological but not really i mean i think there's something deeper that formulates the notion of of what a photograph is and that's weird because <laughs> really a photograph in one sense should be about as open-ended a thing as possible right mm. it's not that's so true. And you know, it isn't just true for the kind of artistic photography that we saw with uh, Mr. Meat Yard. It's in selfies and Instagram pictures as well. I can't help but feel when I scroll social media and I see, see pictures, it's more and more occulted the more pictures I look at. It, it's the op it doesn't bring more clarity to the situation it brings more and more layers of of obfuscation as you go cataracts. on it's not it's cataracts exactly, on yeah, cataracts right, right. Yeah. cataracts on cataracts and it's not necessarily the the photo taker's objective to do so because i would argue the photo taker's objective in these instances would be to provide a kind of clarity not truth, but clarity about a narrative. But to me, whenever I see the, the, it could be something as simple as a mid-range shot of a woman who's selling smoothies, and I immediately have questions. I have a lot of questions about what's going on. I want to leave that there. We're getting very close here, and this has been good. We've put forward the idea that modernity begins with photography. Blah, 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 blah. Nope, no, 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 no. We did that. Uh, oh, here we go. 
Case in point, the most famous photo of all, and what is often considered the most important photo ever taken, not by a human mind, you, but by a machine system, the first picture of planet Earth from space, lonely, whole, mosaic blue. What's wrong with this picture? What's happening when we somehow make determinations about how right a picture is? Is this perhaps what's happening at microsecond speed all the time within our perceptions? Is this what perception in fact is? That's what you were talking about last episode, the most important photo ever taken. Two, and I just want to throw this in here. Oh, my, this is the difficulty of reading uh, text messages on, on the air. Two fragments from old notes. Number one, Solomon Island saying, if you can see out of the back of your head, you can always walk straight and beware the boneless fishes of unexamined expectations. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. I like that one. I like the Solomon Island one too. If you can see out of the back of your head, you can always walk straight. That, that makes sense to me. I don't know how else to put that. If somebody asked me to explain that, I would say, I, read it again. Yeah, <laughs> That's the beauty of them. That, that, that statement is... Uh, a wonderful kind of microcosm jewel of of their larger cultural perspective of and yeah the explanation is there if you try to get into it you've kind of fallen into one of their snares you know because they're mm -hmm. they, they they have a cunning that they enjoy you know they celebrate that it's you know like and i mentioned this in my textbook uh there's a thing where they say, you know, if someone, one of them says to you, do you see that bird in the tree four kilometers away? It took me a while to realize that the correct answer is, do you mean the green one? You know, and there, you just can't explain, you know, that's... Mm -hmm. That's what, you know, my saying is, you know, being able to understand a code isn't being able just to decode a message. It's being able to send a message back in the code, you know, and uh, it took me a while to get onto that. But when I did, I understood and I felt to use a great word, for, you know, cagey. That was, you know, we were talking about cagey last time, I think. Um, was it last time or the time before? Anyway, no, it was last time. Yeah. Yeah, well, that the celebration of caginess is something that we should also feel really good about doing because it's it's a great skill. It's a great survival art, and it's fun. What's, what's wrong with the photo of the Earth? That's okay. I've been thinking a lot about that because I honestly kind of got there from the logic flow of, of my argument rather than really having reversed that and then started. Well, I think first of all, there is the question of who took the photograph. How did that happen? Uh, we have a very sort of major movement. It's not the only one of its kind, but it's the most significant where we've moved from the individual photographer to some sort of 
military, industrial, national, international, you know, institutional extravaganza of photographers or technicians involving this. So there's a lot of, of stuff going on there. But I think that what you could say is what's wrong with it is kind of the message that 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 I think people have have taken away from it or feel, I think this is what I really mean to say, feel they should feel when they see that photo. I think the cultural mythos has grown up around the idea of this precious, lonely planet, you know, but it's one planet. We're all united and we begin to get this vision of what we need to be in order to survive as a species, which is united, which releases from uh, national boundaries and economic disputes and wars and the possibility of nuclear holocaust and on and on and on and on. And when you start to think about it that way, it's like what we were talking about with the argument of, of structure in architecture. You know, you, you, you start to remove or abstract the structure of a building. And I suggest you don't have anything. You know, you certainly don't have a building. You know, structure and, and the building are so linked, they can't really be divided. And... I think that's what's happening in, in the other situation, that we've got this vision of the earth as one and what we need, how we need to change in order to survive. And I, I don't think that's the story at all. I mean, I think for starters, we're, we're completely overlooking the nature of the continents. The, there's lots of different ways to interpret the globe as a globe, as that's an interpretation, that's a model, that's, that's the map version. So that's already a representation. So I think that the, the photograph of the earth and the way I've heard it be, be interpreted most of the time is so rhetorically slanted that we don't in fact see the earth at all. I think we've lost the wonder of it. And not just because that image has re been repeated so often. The repetition of imagery, no question, has potentially enormous psychological impact on the impact of, of the represented uh, object. But so I think it, it what started off and I think could almost automatically for the unexamined thinking person be just a beautiful but kind of poignant sad scary image of one planet has an enormous amount of rhetorical contortions disfigurations freight whatever however we want to sort of put it i don't think it's a at all a clear image. And I contrast it to the, the images uh, at a much, much uh, lower altitude that I've taken skydiving, 
which I think has a lot more, you know, which where you get the sense of the curvature of the earth and the disorientation of free fall. To me, those are much more beautiful and meaningful. And because mm, they include gravity. Yes. And well, they're they really have a, a sense of a vital context because I'm I'm in, you know, I'm falling. Um, whereas Direction, that yeah. the earth shot. It looks like it was, you know, could could have been filmed in Nevada. It's a little fake, it, doesn't it? Oh, oh, oh looks know, a little fake. It it does. It frankly does now. So my, my perspective on that famous photograph, if we can say there is just one of them, um, the original, I mean, Life magazine, I think, is credited with originally publishing it. Uh, there is just no doubt. Mm-hmm. There's something very strange about the reaction to that now. I think we have to, our, our perspective has to have evolved with the layering of, of impressions based on that image and the layering of rhetoric about that image, you know? Mm-hmm. So like that's that. what I meant by that. Um, but also, I mean... Here's my deeper complaint with it. The takeout is supposed to be kind of we choose kindness or we should choose kindness and all be together and and let all our disputes uh, disappear. Well, when you really zero in on the conflicts around the world, the struggles, the number of people in transit, because of traumatic crisis of either weather or government, military junta, on and on and on. Isn't that pretty damn arrogant to say that those people's problems, you know, that they should put those problems down and all just, let's just have a big group hug. You know, I I think that that perspective is so first world and it's sinister. really offensive. I think it's sinister. Yes, okay, I think. Good. I, yeah, yeah. Good. I, I think the group good. hug idea is really sinister, and I think that because the way that I see it is that everything operates on a on a principle of its opposite. So, if you're saying that all you really want is a group hug, that means you want to put people in gas chambers. And if you say you want to engage on the human, sweaty, stinky, ugly level, that actually means that you truly do have this sense of humanity that's only given lip service to in these stupid, you know, whole earth photographs. You know what I mean? Like the spit, the saliva, the nasty stuff. That is when you are truly engaged with humanity. And part of that, by the way, is hate and annoyance and, you know, somebody cutting you off in traffic or not thanking you when you hold the door open for them or farting or whatever, you know? So I'm very suspicious because I tend, as I progress through my 36 remaining summers, I, I, I do tend 
it just, it proves itself over and over again, that the people who have reduced things to, you know, here's a picture of the whole earth and we're all the same. Well, no, we're not. We're not at all. And that's, that's actually what's cool. Not being the same is what's cool. We all live in the same, in the, in the same uh, planet or on the same planet, but like, I'm different from the people who live in my house. So, so I, I guess I feel like this whole idea of, of, of being a, being a whole, a whole society represented by this, by this planet picture is that behind it, there's always that impetus to, um, to make everybody the same. And that is very sinister to me. Well, I would suggest that it it really almost doesn't matter what the goal is, that that what is really sinister is the mechanism, the means, the intent, the intent Mm -hmm. and the the sheer audacity of just taking what should be this wondrous image of true inspiration and cosmic awe and a great fulfillment of human dreaming and innovation and cooperation and intersectional intellectual and practical engineering capability. I mean, it could be the most wonder, it could be really the greatest photograph ever taken, but not only has it been cheapened by constant sort of repetition, which is about as profane as opposed to sacred as you could possibly get, I think the offensive thing is this this projection of of a very semantic, linguistically driven rhetoric of of a pre-programmed takeout. You know, we're all one world. Choose kindness. Be not. You know, this. I mean, it's you can see the global charity. You know, what is it for? Is it about? Oh, maybe it's about global warming. And I'm not saying anything about global warming here, but I'm just saying that the the message has overwhelmed the image and we no longer see the image and we know it no longer works effectively as a message because that channel has broken down. Well, I think that is a good place to halt for today. We've still got a lot of your uh, of today's message. I, I really do like this uh, going through it. Is it working for you? Do you like yes, this? Yes, it is. And I okay. look, I think again. I think it's good that you're sheepdogging us to to keep this going because uh, it, it's a nice. Uh, it sort of percolates and it's like quicksand. Something comes back up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's really cool. Uh, there was just a, a brief, I, I've written, it's it's in my, uh, the big novel, but this is really true, that behind the uh, sort of bush pub that my friend Bob and I would frequent, uh, and I worked there at one point, um, there was a stretch of quicksand. And at one point, there had been a, a shooting of the pub's jukebox. And there was a huge, I wasn't working, I wasn't there when that happened. But the jukebox got thrown into the quicksand and it it disappeared. 
But as people who do know quicksand know, if it's at all confined, if it's not allowed to sprawl out into a larger mook marsh, you know, uh, things do come back up. And mm -hmm. every once in a while, I was there to see the jukebox arise, you know, and it looked completely bizarre because it had been, you know, in the quicksand and was still covered in it. Um, but yeah, it's that's kind of the analogy for how our discussion points will come back up out of the the murk of the quicksand. Cool. I like it. All right. Well, for the imaginative so challenge. The great strategic move. <laughs> okay i will and i will give you my thought process as i okay. like to do now with this kind of thing um so i'm a person who's been involved in the mk ultra program i had been subjected to tests torture and i have emerged from it with a certain set of skills very good. What do I do? All right. Well, we have examples from history as to what people have done after being released from those programs. Most notably, Ted Kaczynski, recently deceased, Charles Manson, T Timothy McVeigh. Uh, these are people who have been subjected to these programs and then have gone on to, you know, commit atrocities. So what do you do? Do you start killing people? Do you become an assassin? Do you take revenge against that? Or do you go the completely opposite direction? Do you attempt to live the most normal life you possibly can because you've reached these pinnacles of, uh, of lasered in regimented human construction as far as the mind goes where you know you can look at a person and tell everything about them in a way that would put most cold readers to shame you could maybe even read their minds if you wanted to because you've been developing those psychic points so do you just become a normal person this is what I was going with for the majority of our conversation. And this last bit hit me at the very end as we were talking. Um, what I think I would do with people like McVeigh and Manson and Kaczynski in mind, and the knowledge that I could do anything that I really wanted to in terms of sociopathically manipulating people and or taking down the people who, you know, enslaved me. What I would do is I would get a coin, a quarter, maybe a half dollar, I don't know. And I would flip it. And I would start making life choices based on chance because what that MK Ultra regimen represents to me is the absolute realization of a program on a person. And many people, when subjected to a program, attempt to create a counter program to take back a kind of control. But you can't 
kill fire with fire. You can't create a program to deprogram yourself from the program because it's just another program. So, yes. So at the very last minute, what I settled on was that I would start to make decisions about where I was going to go based on chance, because at least chance doesn't have a motive, right? And then I would see where it would go from there. So a coin flip. Well, I think that is very, very uh, shrewd strategic decision. And I think it it, it, it finds many interesting uh, echoes and resonances in, uh, in history, certainly in, in literary um, and, and philosophical thinking. Um, because, well, I mean, just some of the most interesting people, I mean, think of the musicians who've been, been involved in Mozart was heavily involved in it. Well, long before John Cage, you know, Mozart, for God's sakes. Uh, so the, the notion of what chance even is, mm-hmm. is, is so powerful. It's one of, uh, one of the, uh, the words I'm I'm thinking about in my this one of the books in progress. It's such a powerful, mysterious, strange word, and we've got lots of you know fate, destiny. There's a lot of things that that it's a real field. It's a very energized uh, word field, but I think that's a really great response, you know. And and you are kind of um, accessing the third man in the woods. You know, I mean, it, it, it ties in with the William Burroughs, uh, Brian Geisen idea of the third mind. You know, when two minds come together, they're in the presence of a third mind, which has even greater, you know, it's a beautiful, you know, connected organism idea that uh, mm-hmm. well, all of our heroes, Lewis Thomas was just loved anything like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's inspiring because it, it really... I think it does speak to a lot of experience that we actually do have, even if we can't articulate it often. But I think it is the way forward to possibly some realization of the very best of that earth from outer space photograph. Maybe that's the only way to get there is that kind of networked mind. and. It's also just new, exciting, strange frontier, which should call everyone. I know. I know. know? know, As I thought of it, I thought it might actually be cool to flip a coin on how I'm going to respond to things. Wouldn't that be kind of neat if somebody comes to you with a job opportunity and you flip a coin and it's heads or tails? Well, all you really need to do is have this discipline of of the kind of the monk or the morning miracle, you know, just mm-hmm. follow through on that because it's a simple technique, but it it may be leveraging something quite well, it is leveraging something very mysterious, no matter how you try to uh, minimize the bizarreness of the notion of chance 
that's the that's the, the philosophical question for all humanity. I mean, that's really what does that mean? What is chance as opposed to what? You know, <laughs> I mean, it just like talk about quicksand. You mm-hmm. know, there you go, there you go. So I think that's a great um, a great thing to think about. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of the I Ching sort of idea, but I. I would get a really cool coin and yeah, get a cool one. Yeah, exactly. Give that a try. Try to really just discipline yourself, even for, I don't know, 48, 48 hours. I know. Yeah. It's so cool. And it reminds me of how I felt this week, because as I mentioned earlier to you, we've had a really hot day, But yesterday I woke up and it was just these torrential rains and 60 mile an hour winds. And I drove Rios to work and my car was being batted along the highway. Uh, Really frightening, scary stuff. And now today it's completely calm wind wise, but it's very hot. And I thought to myself, I'm at this, I'm at the whim of this seemingly random, you know, uh, ambient thing. So why not just lean into that? Like the weather, you know, I can't control what it looks like outside tomorrow or how hot the sun is. So maybe with things in my life, just start treating those the same way. Like I I can do what I can do, which is I can wake up every day at four and write. I can talk to you every Wednesday at 830. I can talk to Kelby every, uh, you know, whenever we talk. Uh, I can read 20 pages of a book before bed. I can take a shower every morning. I can do the dishes before I go to sleep so that the ants don't come out and the flies don't gather around our crusted up spaghetti. Those are the things that I can do, but I can't control whether it's raining or sunny or whether I get a job or don't get, you see what I'm saying? So like have systems and flip coins might be a really great way to live. I think that's well said. It's a nice oscillation, you know, and oscillation is, is one of our, our favorite sort of verb processes. And it, it may be, you know, I mean, I think that there's, that's, that to me is where some of the most optimistic possibilities are when you do have that oscillation between very different states, very different uh, approaches. Uh, I mean, I think that's right. You know, I think there really is, Take control and yield control, you know? Yeah, there we go. Take control and yield control. See, this is what you're so good at. You just distilled all that into a cool phrase that I can write onto a sticky note and put on my wall. Take control and yield control. Yeah. But you have some agency while you do it. And you have agency within chance as well. You're still acting within that particular branch of the or that uh uh, not branch but tributary right of the stream you can still do things with that do you have tools and tips for today yeah and the tool really just builds so just beautifully organically from what you've just said and what we've just been talking about because it is about one of our ongoing themes of, of really resolving as in getting down in the baked beans or the cream corn and wrestling with, <laughs> binders, 
you know, you really got to get, you got to get messy. And cream, cream corn wrestling. Yeah, that's my analogy. Well, we're heading into summer, you know, it's kind of, you know, a little bit county oh. fair, but maybe kind of older school sideshow midway lost <laughs> time uh, county fairs. You know, we wouldn't. That wouldn't be family friendly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to sleep chuckling about cream corn wrestling now, which is a thing. I know, I know it's a thing, but yeah, still so funny. It's a, it's a, it really is a thing. I remember when they used to have it done at the east end of Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, the really nasty sort of part in the old days with coming off the the uh, the 101 on the Hollywood freeway. It just. It was a terrible, <laughs> terrible smell. And of course, cream corn for David Lynch fans is very important to the Black Lodge. But this place on Sunset, just, just nasty in every way, had an aroma on a hot summer day that really just can't be described. I mean, it was, it was disturbing. But here's the tool, because I think that it's it really one of the realizations over the last year, and I think something that has led to my good groove, is the, the realization that you don't have major realizations or resolutions of big chasms, big binaries, or just big questions in your own personal private life without, without facing some monsters or getting messy in some way or directly going out for it. It's not going to, the solution is not going to come to you. If you care about it, you're going to have to go looking for it in some way and be prepared to, to maybe deal with some conflict so I want to put forward as politely as I can without any recommendation about this specifically. I'm using this as an analogy, okay? I don't want people to think that this is the experiment, but I happen to think that this is um, a visceral enough one to, to make my point. Uh, so I want to take full accountability for that. But Consider for a moment, and, and uh, some friends are doing this as a, a formal psychology department experiment uh, at a Midwestern school, but consider watching some pretty straightforward heterosexual pornography, for example, but it doesn't have to be, but something fairly straightforward if you like, if it's gay or hetero, it doesn't matter. As long as it's pretty basic mainstream porn. And while that's going on, classic, deeply romantic torch songs, famous popular love songs are playing. Just imagine this as a thought experiment, if nothing else at this point. There is a, there is a conflict there is an absolute conflict between lust and love, which are very, very unpacked and usually defended. There's just so much going on with those concepts 
We don't like to deal with them. And we certainly don't like to deal with the collision of them. But I think there is something in that of really aggressively using the tool of dialectic. And if people want to obsess on the example I used, okay, fine. What I'm really talking about is using the classic tool of dialectic to really do some hard smashing and, and dissolving and dismantling of apparent conceptual psychological and certainly linguistic binaries that can sometimes just really cause deep headaches and stomach aches and sleep disorders and i think a spiritual fatigue so that's my like that. i like that i i just had the image of a of a woman you know mascara running covered in sweat getting drilled down screaming, maybe having an orgasm, but over it is Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. Dude, that's, that's a very good juxta- <laughs> violent juxtaposition that I think makes the point really. And you can imagine if, if we were creating that, say, as some sort of multimedia studio, uh, it would be fascinating to get the market research results on that. But you can almost guarantee cognitive dissonance that mm-hmm. we would have really created a nice little sigil, you know, mm-hmm. of millions. But when we start to do that and you analyze that as both a communications process, a technical production process, and a psychological experiment of a fairly sinister kind, you realize that that is exactly, exactly so much of what is going on in the media. So much of it falls under that rubric in some way, wouldn't you say? I would think so. Yeah, it's, uh, well, the media has made everything that is pornographic, sacred, and vice versa. So actively doing that yourself i think has its has its benefits well this is one of the things that we mean in you know when we talk about psychic defense is really being able to to deal with those that that double streaming and this is why we've you know worked on that and you've done such a great job you know working words in and just doing two channel work of a very high order that helps, I think, get calibrated mm-hmm. the double communication that is constantly hitting us. And so we're kind of always sort of off balance, you know, metaphorically. And I think that the only way to, to gain balance is kind of like your strategy of, of you know, flipping the coin. It's another, it's, it's another way of thinking of that, of, of, kind of experimenting with that notion of balance you know awesome your tip okay my tip is really uh really deep and meaningful sort of but it's down very down to earth i was uh taking a break the other day and i was having some thoughts that i i didn't feel very proud of i i think they 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 the emotion would be 
categorized as envy. So I thought about that for a moment because I am in this good vibe and I, I found myself able to look at this, this emotion. You know, we have really dark feelings about envy. We talk about being green with envy. It's, it's uh, often presented as a caricatured monster. And I thought, you know, wait a minute. What? Wait a minute. You know, uh, because I thought, you know, in this particular example that I'm thinking of, I had, there's every reason to be envious. I mean, anybody would be envious. You know, my touchstone of uh, the Puerto Rican uh, gal in high heel shoes who's working in, you know, not quite 34th Street, New York. What would she think? She'd go, yeah, be envious. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think I my my realization was, and I think jealousy is another emotion. These are very popular emotions. Mm -hmm. These are very common emotions. There's no reason to feel ashamed of them. I'm not even sure they should be worked against, even mm -hmm. if they seem like self-sabotage sometimes. So what? You know, let them be. And I just had this moment of absolute release where I thought, I'm not going to I'm not going to feel bad about having those emotions and then have the problem of the emotions. I'm just going to lean into the whole thing, as, as you'd say, and just really accept it and actually think that there's something kind of cool about it. I certainly think that that jealousy could be a deep problem. I've I've been around that. But on the other hand, I think there's something cool, you know, and important about it. And I think that in any case, owning up to it is shouldn't be a problem. You know, it's very human. I've been watching a show. I mentioned this last time, but I've been watching uh, Hannibal. Yeah. A show about a serial killer. And of course, he's a psychopath, sociopath, whatever a path you want to call him. But I find myself watching the show and thinking very similarly to what you are saying, which is I feel a lot of guilt about everything. This character on this show doesn't feel guilt about anything. But what if, again, there was a third thing where you just you had guilt but it wasn't this debilitating you know the guilt didn't have uh you know an agenda with it there's a magical and it's that word is important james dickey poem called adultery and it's just it's so out of keeping in a way with what his normal mythic Antaeus sort of uh, mythology was about. I just think he's a wonderful, wonderful poet. Cherry Log Road and the Heaven of Animals and a Screen Porch in the Country are my favorite poems of his. But the ending of adultery is just the line, guilt is magical. Mm. You know, and he really just gets to all of the horniness of, of an affair all of the, the fascinating magnetism of it. 
is is just is all based on guilt you know <laughs> and any good catholic you know would be right on board with all of that you know so guilt is magical and i think we just need to groove with it and maybe accept that sometimes it's completely legitimate and, and jealousy and envy yeah and yeah it's like no yeah that's how that's the way that i feel yeah. I'm not going to try to tell myself not to feel that way because it has, I almost said has value, but that's the wrong way of looking at it. It doesn't have value. It's, it's an experience. And I think that, you know, another part that I really have been thinking about lately is, is James Wright with that beautiful line, the branch will not break title poem of one of his best books i think we need to have a little bit more faith in ourselves that that we do have some perspective and some awareness you know obviously some people do not and mm-hmm. think of us all you know and it is a question of well who's really sane here or who's you know it's all a spectrum and on and on and on and we know that but i think when push comes to shove and it always does we need to be more accepting of ourselves, generally speaking, I think, and to have more faith. And I think certainly people who are our listeners, I just have that that psychic certainty that that's more true than not. That trust in the fact that you're you're not delusional and that you're not getting out of line, or accept that maybe you do, you know, and mm-hmm. there's that's that's okay too i mean there was a period of time when i first ever had any contact with you and it was kind of funny because there were moments where you really you knew you got out of line in very physical terms you know and there were fights and there were and you accepted that that was part of the the whole deal and i think that that's now been sanitized out of existence for a lot of people, particularly young men, or they go overboard, you know, and yeah, finding the balance is, is really difficult. But I think that it, if we can start with accepting some of these really basic, powerful, emotional uh navigational tools, really, I mean, they all correspond with colors with with uh, keys of music they have great psychological currency and we just got to accept them i mean you don't have to live in those worlds all the time you know i think that would be a nightmare to to occupy any jealousy space all the time hmm. but i think to to be in that to be capable of that location and that tonal response i think that's a good thing like that have you dreamt i have and this is it there's a theme there's clearly been a theme with the dreams of of some interesting male figures mentor type figures kind of returning uh of late uh but In the most vivid dream, I had a strange telephone call with my father, dead, 
okay? Mm-hmm. But I got the number via my godfather who I ended up having a very moving encounter with in Australia. He came to visit me and my then wife, and I've written about it. And it's one of the better pieces because I was really not looking forward to his visit. I hadn't seen him in a very long time. I just, it seemed very weird, but it ended up being a really powerful uh, meeting. He was, I I think I mentioned him on that. He was the only really important male friend that was at my father's memorial service. So I really valued uh, him. He took his role as godfather very seriously. But through him, I managed to get phone access to my father. And he sounded just completely nonplussed but very surprised at how I'd gotten a hold of him and kind of, well, he was surprised to hear from me and, and just kind of put out. And I said, well, you know, I'm the one who should be, I'm alive and you're dead. And he said, without any affect at all, that's not how it works. Hmm. And from there, I then, I kind of, I I must have woken up because I I remember some real sort of kind of plasmatic movement into an entirely different dimension. And from this dream, I did wake up absolutely laughing aloud because it was a perfect cinema movie style dream where I was just allowed just to watch. And it was called Lionel Perisher and Merriweather Fig, (laughs) two G's. And it starred Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, of course. They were 19th century British explorers in Africa in kind of legendary sort of terms. But the kicker is that they're completely incompetent. They are hopeless at every single aspect. So the movie becomes this beautiful, it's a beautiful period piece thing done precisely in terms of set design and costuming and locations. But they are just larger than life dickheads. And (laughs) they play it absolutely straight. And it becomes a mirror for at least, I don't know, I'm sure I'm not alone. I I don't know what it is I don't like about them because I've seen their movies. And sometimes I really do like them. But something just kind of just turns my stomach or just upsets me. Maybe it's envy, you know? I think of Ben and he's got Jennifer Lopez's beautiful, but, you know, I just, there's lots of reasons to be in it. <laughs> but the movie is a, a mirror, a kind of weird prism more than anything mm-hmm. for Ben Affleck and Matt Damon as, as actors in another sense. And I kind of was getting in the dream a lot of what we're talking about of 
these how the mirrors end up devouring themselves or extending you know we get layer upon layer upon layer because Ben Affleck and Matt Damon when I think about them not only are they actors who play characters they're as far as I know their real life is acting you know it doesn't have any reality for for me other than it's just another part they're playing and we know this with all celebrities but I think they're really emblematic of a particular uh irreality but the movie uh not only i watched the the film in the dream but i also got to see some of the the press junket where someone on the production like one of the major producers is being asked well how how did it work like what what is the key to the the film and he leans forward into the camera in my dream that and goes, not only did Ben and Matt play it straight, they didn't see any other alternative. They didn't have any ironic sense at all. And I I woke up thinking, oh my God, this is this is how colossally. Uh, not only not really arrogant isn't the right word, but how colossally distanced from reality they are. And I, that's what I woke up laughing. But Lionel Parisher and Meriwether Fig, two G's, I think is a great <laughs> combo. So that was my dream.